0: because we're reading from the Gospel of Mark today. So we're in the middle of a sermon series on Sabbath. And this week I had dinner with a friend who asked me, when you give those Sabbath assignments every week, like two hours of Sabbath rest, exactly what does that mean? She said, like, what counts as Sabbath rest? So our text is from the Gospel of Mark Jesus talks about Sabbath, and it's safe to say that Jesus even practices Sabbath, but he seeks to redefine it. And this new definition is what we're searching for as I read Mark 3, verses 1 through 6 for you. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. The Pharisees watched him to see whether he could cure him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, have you ever been asked a question that stunned you? Maybe you didn't expect the question, or you didn't expect the honesty of the question that was in front of you. Maybe you didn't know what the answer was, or maybe you didn't know how the person wanted you to answer. This week, I went on a field trip with Daniel's fifth grade class. Uh, We went out uh, near Bernie to Honey Creek Nature Preserve. During lunch, one of the on-site presenters asked me if I was a teacher or a parent. We'd been there all morning. I didn't answer immediately because this is what I thought. Really? It seems so obvious. I don't know the kids' names. I have this clueless look about me, and I can't answer your questions on adaptation. It seems obvious what I am. But then this voice of shame came and spoke to me in the silence. He can't tell that you're a parent because you're a bad parent. (laughs) Your kid isn't walking with you. (laughs) And your kid hasn't said a word to you since you got here. Really, it was just a matter of seconds before I fessed up. Hey, I'm a parent. But I want you to know that I understand what it's like to be stunned by a question and to respond with silence. I get that. I also want you to know that I get why silence grieves Jesus in this story. Jesus asks the Pharisees, who really are a righteous group, they are trying to do good, they are trying to do things the right way, like a parent on a field trip, (laughs) Jesus asks the Pharisees, is it lawful? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? So it's not just the disciples and the readers who know the answer to this question. The Pharisees know the answer, too. And it is either their certainty or their shame that silences them. Maybe it's some of both. And that grieves Jesus. It grieves Jesus because certainty and shame are always a bad combination. Shame is that voice, that voice that tells you that there's something off about you. That you are essentially not lovable. That you are fundamentally no good. Fundamentally unlovable and absolutely right is a dangerous combination. The wires are crossed. The Pharisees are certain. They are certain in their opposition of Jesus. And at the same time, they are convinced That right actions and beliefs will earn their status as righteous. Shamefully, they can't give the obvious answer. Do good. Choose life on the Sabbath. And because they can't give the obvious answer, they miss a chance for a new freedom. And that really is painfully disheartening. This is also the group that appears in Mark chapter 3 that will conspire to bring about the crucifixion. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Verse 6 has the two grumbling together. The Pharisees went out and they immediately conspired with the Herodians against Jesus to destroy him. This is foreshadowing in this gospel. It's Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate the Roman governor who will bring the destruction of the cross. When certainty and shame are present, the potential to work against God's revelation is great. That energy is there, and so is the ability to bring about destruction. I'm hesitant to say it because I hate to ever oversimplify a very complex problem. But any person who would open fire on a vulnerable group of people carries a deadly amount of shame and certainty. We are witnesses this very week to the fact that shame and certainty in high amounts are a terrible combination And it's ours, I believe, it's ours to speak truth to shame. To tell people and to show people that they are worthy. And to model. To model what it looks like to follow the truth. Instead of just shouting out our own version of truth repeatedly. Digging in our heels deeper into a trench. Father Richard Rohr wrote, Many religious folk insist on answers that are always true. We love closure and resolution and clarity while thinking that we are people of faith. How strange it is that the very word faith has come to mean its exact opposite. I get that because I like certainty and closure. And in some Christian circles, Faith has come to mean certitude. But to have faith, to have faith means that we don't have all the answers. It means that we can live with some degree of ambiguity. And it means most of all that we are followers, that we are not the way, but we are followers of the way. It's interesting to me that Jesus seems to remind the disciples and the Pharisees and even the readers of their place. He reminds them of their place in the preface to this healing story that takes place on the Sabbath in the synagogue. So at the very end of chapter 2 in Mark's gospel, there are these words. So the Son of Man is Lord. Even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Eugene Peterson rewrites this particular passage in this way He says, The Son of Man is no lackey to the Sabbath, (laughs) He's in charge. So the Son of Man is not a minion, He is not an attendant. When we say Jesus is Lord, when we proclaim Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus is in charge. And that we look to him for direction. And so that's helpful. That's helpful when I'm thinking about how to live into Sabbath. How to observe this day that is set apart every week. Lucky for me, right after Mark makes this declaration... Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, there's this story about what Jesus values on the Sabbath. And that's instructive to me. Jesus values the synagogue, the place that the first century Jews would go to hear and to talk about the scripture. And Jesus values the people of God because he goes where they are. He goes where they are to teach and to heal. But there are are two things in this account that really stand out to me. Two things in this account that I will use as guidelines from here on to tell me what counts as Sabbath time. Here's the first thing. The first is restoration. At its best... Sabbath time restores us. Sabbath restores you and me and creation and relationships between people. We considered Exodus 31 last week as we were talking about Sabbath. And Exodus 31 says this. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he was refreshed. Refreshed. So there's something about Sabbath that can and should fill our tanks. In the gospel story, Jesus restores the man's hand that the Bible describes as withered. So author Lois Tverberg, who has written a lot about the times, the biblical times in the day of Jesus, says that in the first century, special attention was given to what exactly was defined as work, Which activities were forbidden on the Sabbath? And she says this, if human life was in danger, all the rules would be set aside on the Sabbath. Anything that counted as work would be set aside on the Sabbath because any person could work to save a life on Shabbat. And to this day, observant Jews, Jewish doctors and nurses will go to work. On a Saturday, because even the possibility of saving a life is enough to put those rules about Sabbath aside. So what we see in this scene in Mark's gospel is that this man's life is not in danger. He's afflicted. He's impaired. So one could say that Jesus is treading on the rules here. And I believe that's probably pretty true to Jesus' character. He seems to like to tread on the rules. But Jesus isn't grinding up herbs to heal the man. He's not putting together a splint. So technically, he's not breaking the rules. He's not doing the things that make for work. He just instructs the man to stretch out his hand. And the man does this. And his hand is healed. But here's what's true. Here's what lies beneath the surface of this story in Mark's gospel. Jesus offends the rule keepers. This is his crime. He is offending the scribes and the Pharisees simply by calling this man forward. In Leviticus 21, these words, No man who has any defect may come near To present an offering. Then the Torah spells out specific disabilities and disfigurements that are banned from the place of worship. And in that list is included those who have a crippled foot or a crippled hand. Jesus calls this man forward to the middle of the synagogue, where everyone can see the middle of the worship space, and he heals his hand. But more importantly than that, he restores his place. You are no longer excluded, Jesus' actions say. You belong here. When Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, restoration becomes the law of the land. So anything, anything that you do that restores your own soul or the dignity of another person, or I'm even going to say creation, because there are a lot of Sabbath hours that I spend digging in the dirt. Anything that restores creation, your soul, another person's dignity, relationship between people, when Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, that counts because restoration rules the day. Closely related to restoration, I believe, is the priority of relationships. Jesus values these people. Jesus values the disciples. He values the man with the withered hand. He values even the Pharisees. And I want you to know that restoration can't much happen outside of relationships. We recite every week the words of the Shema, and those very words can work to guide our Sabbath rest, that we love God, that we love others, and that we care well for ourselves. We were talking this week in staff meeting here at the church About the best way to help the community at Sutherland Springs. Could we send cards their way? Could we gather up a bunch of heart pillows? Because this church has a heart pillow ministry. Would that be a good thing to send? Or should we send prayer shawls? These were all very good and noble ideas, I believe. But in my mind's eye... In my mind's eye, I could see blankets and pillows piling up in that small community from all over the world to the point where it was more than they could handle, more than would be comforting, more than would be helpful. And I think we struck gold in our conversation when we discovered that two people on staff have personal relationships, personal connections with individuals who were affected by the shooting, one has a neighbor, and the other has a friend from high school that were affected, directly affected by the shooting. That's our end, I believe. That's our end and how to help. Because of those personal connections, The people in Sutherland Springs can tell us what they need, when they need it, when we ask, and when they tell us because of that connection. Restoration efforts, they just need relationship. Restoration needs that personal connection. Or I believe devastated areas just end up with a lonely pile of junk. There is a possibility that our lives can become a lonely pile of junk as well. So much accumulation, so much activity on the calendars, no reflection, no connection. Sabbath, I believe, is the restorative cure. Sabbath is connection. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe, and we thank you this day for Sabbath rest, for your priorities of relationship and restoration. You are reconciling all things, making all things new, and so we seek your direction We mark our space in this world as your space and everyone we encounter, everyone we see as your child. Allow us to work against shame, to work against isolation, and to receive the truth that you reveal. Lead us, comfort and keep us, that we might know when to act and when to resist. And we would be part in bringing in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.